2: Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we're going to discuss getting ready for summer with naturopathic Dr. Ludo Brunel. We'll talk about artificial intelligence and your wellness with researcher David Nelson. We'll find out about mindful eating for women with registered dietitian Nicole Osinga. And lastly, we'll learn how a doctor misdiagnosed his own condition with Dr. Ali Karam. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Married people who have affairs find them highly satisfying, express little remorse, and believe the cheating didn't hurt their otherwise healthy marriages, according to a new report on the psychology of infidelity out of Johns Hopkins University. The extensive survey of people using Ashley Madison, a website for facilitating extramarital affairs, challenges widely held notions about infidelity, particularly about cheaters, motivations, and experiences. And I have to tell you, I had mixed thoughts about actually conveying that study, because I'm all about solid marriages, but there you go. For the first time, researchers have recorded pain-related data from inside the brain of individuals with chronic pain disorders caused by stroke or amputation. A long-sought-after goal has been to understand how pain is represented by brain activity and how to modulate that activity to relieve suffering from chronic pain. Data was collected over months while patients were at home and was analyzed using machine learning tools. Doing so, the researchers, National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke identified an area of the brain associated with chronic pain and objective biomarkers of chronic pain in individual patients. 53% 53% of the world's largest freshwater lakes are in decline, storing less water than they did three decades ago, according to a new study. The study out of the University of Colorado at Boulder analyzed satellite observations dating back decades to measure changes in water levels in nearly 2,000 of the world's biggest lakes and reservoirs. It found that climate change, human consumption, and sedimentation are responsible. I'll be joined by Dr. Ludo Brunel, ND, in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, Visit newrootsherbal.com. Dr. Ludo Brunel is a naturopathic physician trained at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto. Prior to his training as a doctor, he studied human nutrition at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Brunel has spent the last 17 years helping patients optimize their health through better lifestyles and dietary supplementation. His passion remains educating the public, his patients, and colleagues. Welcome back to the show, Ludo. How you doing?
3: I'm very good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited
2: to talk about summer. Summer. And, you know, every time we talk about summer, we have to start, I think, with hydration or dehydration. So, you know, I used to run. I don't run anymore. I can't. It's something I'm familiar with. Have you ever experienced dehydration during uh, an outdoor activity?
3: Yeah, actually, my very first hike. My water bottle was not easily accessible, and so I basically didn't drink most of the day. Oh, no. And uh, later on, I started feeling some of the effects of dehydration. So, yeah, it's common. I see it all the time. I think hydration is often a problem for a lot of people. For most of us, the recommended water intake per day is about two and a half, three liters. And unfortunately, I see lots of patients that are well below that, and often that comes with health problems such as constipation, and even kidney stones. When you're not drinking enough, and over time it can really increase your risk of developing kidney stones. But of course the bigger problem is suffering from dehydration. And if you're suffering from dehydration, uh, you really don't feel well. So typically you start feeling fatigued, weakness, dizzy, I felt muscle cramps, uh, I almost felt like I had a fever, I felt overheated. Had a headache. Yeah, so we want to avoid that, obviously, because, yeah, it should be easy to maintain hydration. But unfortunately, a lot of us don't think of it when we're in the sun and we're sweating more, especially for exercising. Water intake really needs to increase during those days.
2: Yeah, when I was running, if, if I, I knew and by the time you get those signs, it, you know, I wouldn't say it's too late, but you're already dehydrated. If you're feeling headachey, or if you're feeling muscle cramps, you're already dehydrated. So you got to deal with it.
3: Absolutely. As soon as you start feeling thirsty, you've already lost a lot of your water. So they say about 8% of your body's water is already gone by the time you just feel thirst. So being proactive is usually the best thing to do. Just constantly maintain your water intake. So slowly throughout the day, just keep drinking some water on those hot, humid days. Very, very important.
2: So in some circumstances, just drinking water isn't enough though, right? When you're dehydrated?
3: Yeah, I think the electrolytes are super important as well. Uh, electrolytes help to regulate nerve muscle function. They do help us hydrate. So it makes the water go where it needs to go. It also helps to rebuild damaged tissue. So if you're exercising, water with electrolytes is usually the best way to go.
2: So maybe not getting one of those highly advertised sports drinks? Where where, where do you stand on that?
3: Yeah, you know, a lot of those sports drinks are going to be very high in sugar. They're going to contain artificial colors and flavoring. So typically, we don't need that much sugar when we're exercising. So typically, I tell people, try to use a cleaner product. Uh, New Roots has an excellent electrolyte product called electrolytes and it contains the key minerals we're looking for the potassium the calcium the magnesium and then some vitamins that also help us uh, rehydrate so typically you know that would be a much better option than a very sugary artificial looking drink and too much sugar is not good for hydration anyways so I tell people to try to stay away from that stuff unless you know, you're running a marathon or or doing something pretty extreme where you're going to deplete some of your um, energy reserves. But, you know, if if you're just going for a run or playing some sports, typically I would not recommend those drinks.
2: If we're not going to have water or water with electrolytes, are there any other options? Are there any natural options?
3: for sure. Like coconut water, for example, does contain some electrolytes. So some people use that to get some of those electrolytes. You could make your own electrolyte drink. So again, using a a product, typically a powder that you would add to water. Uh, You could also use something natural, a little bit of lemon, honey. Some people use a tiny bit of sea salt to get some of those electrolytes as well. So there's lots of options. But yeah, if you're worried about dehydration, then something such as coconut water, homemade electrolyte drink is usually, other than a supplement, the way to go.
2: Okay. So we lose our electrolytes and our hydration when we are outside and being active in the sun, but it might also be putting strains on other parts of our system, including our heart, right? Right.
3: For sure. Uh, You know, when it's very hot and humid and the temperature is higher, the body has to work harder to cool itself. And that means the heart usually will have to beat faster, pump more blood, um, just to try to cool the, the body through the skin. So summer activities can be physically demanding, especially when it's hotter and very humid. Uh, Changes in in your routine can also tax the heart. So if you're traveling by airplane, for example, if you're eating out more, if there's more salt in in what you're eating, you know, if you're drinking more alcohol, all of that uh, heavy, fatty foods, like if you're barbecuing, usually a lot of that is not the healthiest food for the heart. And so certainly, you know, during the summertime, there can be some activities that'll tax our heart a little bit more as well.
2: So, knowing that that's true, is there anything that we can do to support our heart health during the summer?
3: For sure, again, hydration is key right so making sure you don't you don't let yourself get rated. Your diet is the essential, like eating eating properly, eating healthy fats, staying away from unhealthy fats, of course, really important for the heart exercise, staying active is one of the key benefits of exercise that decreases the risk of heart disease simply because it trains the heart. You want to also try to protect yourself from the sun. You want to avoid heat stroke, for example. You want to manage stress always. And then there's also lots of supplements that really can help support heart health as well.
2: So what supplements would you recommend if you're trying to support the heart?
3: Uh, One of the most important ones that I recommend for most patients is simply fish oil or omega-3 oil we really don't get enough in our diet those oils help to balance cholesterol they help to decrease inflammation uh... really important for overall heart, heart health uh... mct oil for um some people can be super helpful it's a source of energy so it really helps in terms of maintaining good energy but the other thing that can be interesting is research now shows if you get more nct oil it usually decreases the amount of calories you eat in a day so um, it helps control appetite another one that's often used is coq10 coq10 is an energy metabolite and it's involved in producing energy for the heart so lots of research there showing that it can help with blood pressure, it can help uh, with better heart function overall. And then another one that um, a lot of my patients will use after exercise to support muscle and joint health is DMSO and that's available in the liquid.
2: Okay, is there a product recommendation that you have and if so, why?
3: So in terms of the fish oil, I, um, the product that I use at home for myself and the kids is the Wild Omega 3 by New Roots. I use the liquid. I I really like liquid. I find it's easier to get the proper amount. One of the biggest problems I see with fish oil is that people are not using enough. I see a lot of patients that are using one or two soft gels of fish oil per day, but you need quite a bit more. So typically a teaspoon is, is what we're looking for. And a teaspoon is five or six soft gels. Not everybody likes liquid fish oil, but you can definitely use the soft gels, but getting enough, I think is is the key thing. The source of the oil is also really important. so in this case we're we're looking at oil that comes from wild fish and it's tested for heavy metals and to ensure quality. So that's why I use that product at home. But I I do feel it's one of the key things that's lacking for most of us. We used to say you should eat fish twice a week. And now the latest research shows we probably need a lot more than that, ideally five times a week. And most of my patients simply cannot do that. So I think the fish oil is a great way to bridge that gap. I was also involved with a large uh, health program where we were testing the oil and the blood to see if people were getting enough omega-3s, and uh, most people are nowhere near where they should be. So really, really important to try to get more omega-3s.
2: So most people think that when they're outside, particularly in summer and they're soaking in the sun's rays, that they don't have to worry about their, their vitamin D supplementation, but that isn't necessarily true, is it?
3: No, and um, and I see that all the time, too, where people will say, well, I I decreased the dose, so I stopped taking vitamin D in the summer because of sun exposure. I think it's important to be careful with the sun. I see lots of older patients that have all kinds of sun-related skin damage and need to get uh, regular treatments to try to uh, control that damage. We want to avoid sunburns, definitely, but any sun exposure leads to premature aging, And skin cancer is a huge problem in Canada. It's a problem that's increasing. And so we really want to cover ourselves and use sunscreen if, if we're not able to cover ourselves because of the activities we're doing or because it's too hot. So typically, I tell people it's much safer to use a supplement than to try to get vitamin D from sun exposure. And then also, you know, you may not be getting as much as you think. Most of us work inside, and then, of course, if you're using a sun blocker, any sunscreen above the uh, SPF factor of 15 blocks all uh, vitamin D production in the skin. And you really should protect your skin from the sun anyways. So it's really important to get vitamin D. It's, it's crucial for bone health. It's really important for immune system. It, it's important for the heart it helps to balance mood, and it helps prevent all kinds of of autoimmune and neurological disorders. So really, really important to get it. But I do think supplementation is is the best way, um, even during the summer months, simply because sun exposure, I think, should be minimized.
2: What about our gut health? Are there any implications for the summer with respect to our guts?
3: Yeah, like, again, you know, hydration, really important. So if you're not getting enough water, things like constipation are far more likely. There's lots of get-togethers in the summertime, right? So Uh it's not only Christmas and Thanksgiving, where we sometimes uh, indulge more than we should. Think of barbecues, or a lot of people drink more alcohol, I feel, in the summertime. Um, So that can increase the risk of um, having some gut issues, If you're traveling, um, there's also potential risk of infections depending on where you're going. You know, if you're in crowded pools or if you're traveling, there can be risk of gastrointestinal infections, right? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely gut health year-round can be an issue. But uh, I find in the summertime, some people tend to struggle more because the diet varies more and they're traveling more.
2: Are probiotics relevant to the discussion of travel? Like, like can they help?
3: I think probiotics is is another supplement that's underutilized. I, I do feel that probiotics should be used by most people. And certainly if you're traveling, traveler's diarrhea is a huge problem depending on uh, which country you're going to be traveling to. They help to prevent digestive upset. They help to regulate bowel function. They prevent infections. They help to maintain a norm, normal immune system. They help us digest different foods as well. So really, really important. There's no research even showing that it helps to balance mood, prevents depression, helps us deal with stress. And I think most of us are not getting enough of those healthy bacterias simply because we don't need enough fermented food. So for a lot of people, I think a probiotic makes a lot of sense for sure.
2: Okay. And last question, what do you look for in a probiotic?
3: What you're looking for? Well, you know, there's there's lots of different types of um, bacteria that's been shown to be helpful. So, you know, in terms of modulating the gut flora, preventing inflammation and, and many different disease like colorectal cancer, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, some of the strains have more research. So typically lactobacillus acidophilus is, is one of the strains we definitely want to get. Bifidobacterium is another one that's really important. There's lots of research on a yeast called Saccharomyces boulardii. And the other one that has tons of research is Lactobacillus rhamnosus. So I think those strains have lots of research showing that they work and they do what we're we're looking for when it comes to probiotics. We also want to typically get something that's going to have an enteric coating just to protect the bacteria from the stomach acid and then unfortunately i see more and more probiotics that are not kept refrigerated and i think that's that's not great simply because a lot of the strains that are supported um, with the most amount of research need to be refrigerated otherwise the counts decrease very very quickly so if you're using a product that's not refrigerated either the bacteria is going to die off very quickly and decreases the benefits or they have to use different strains that are not as well researched. And so typically, those are the key things, an enteric coating, refrigerated, and then those specific strains of bacteria that I was just mentioning.
2: Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: For sure. Thank you very much for having me.
2: That was Dr. Ludo Burnell. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss artificial intelligence and your wellness on The Tonic. Lumia is a premier eye surgery center that offers a full range of vision correction options with the most cutting edge technology and elective eye procedures like LAL, a revolutionary adjustable cataract procedure co-founded by two of the top surgeons in Canada. Lumia is a team of ophthalmologists, optometrists and eye care professionals dedicated to delivering a best in class patient experience that provides better vision without the use of glasses or contact lenses. For more information, visit www. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: David Nelson is invited faculty at the Nova Institute for Health of People, Places, and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness service business owner, and he's written numerous academic articles, uh, the latest establishing the importance of the acid-alkaline balance of the foods we eat. He lives in Woodstock with his family, and he's a regular guest on this show. Welcome back, David. How are you?
4: Good, Jamie. Good, good. How are you doing?
2: Good. So most of the time you come up with these amazing ideas for what we're going to talk about. But today I have to take ownership of this because Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated with AI and I asked you and you kindly agreed to talk about AI and what's going on with wellness. So yeah. I, just, I just want to I wanted to thank you for, for, for tackling this because it's not an easy topic.
4: Yeah, and I, and I appreciate the ask. My background actually outside of health was in computer science at the University of Waterloo. So artificial intelligence is something that I've thought of, a lot about for a long time. And it's definitely being used in the wellness industry.
2: So let's start with how is it currently being used in the industry?
4: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, great question. And I think that a lot of people don't understand what's under the hood sometimes of some of the smart devices that they have. So it's being used across the board. So let me give you a couple examples, wearable devices, anything like a watch or something that tracks a health metric, like blood pressure or uh, something that tracks heart rate, sleep. These are all devices that aren't just getting data points. They're massaging those data points together with some insight and that gives you support and advice. So when you're looking at these apps, like mental health apps, they have machine learning that offers personalized suggestions for things like stress relief. It knows what maybe music you might want to listen to in a particular mood. It might look at your nutritional patterns and then say, hey, you aren't eating enough vegetables. So that's some examples of how it can add context to our life. But a lot of wearables already have this stuff hard baked into them because it gives it
2: context. That makes a lot of sense. So what would be the tangible benefits of using AI in in a, in a wellness context?
4: Well, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself and then, and then the population at large. So for myself, I wear what's called an aura ring. So I mean, that yep. just tracks my heart rate, my sleep, and a couple different things. But what it shows me using the power of AI is where I can make optimizations in my life. Not that I want to track everything, but this just gives me a quick glance for a week and say, ah, you really need to get to bed earlier. You know, or you're on your phone too much. So the benefits of AI are substantial. We get personalized health and wellness advice, and that's the thing that's really impossible, or uh, that was impossible before. We weren't able to do this like for a large, large, large group of people. But now you get personalized advice on how to manage your health and how to optimize your life. So how does it work? AI has to make sense of um, a huge amount of data. So just imagine an Excel spreadsheet that's pages and pages and pages and pages, because you know, your devices are, are, are recording this stuff on a regular basis. To yep. so look at that. You have no idea what it means. But when you add AI, it can show you how your blood pressure and your glucose are linked together to give you better sleep, for example.
2: I understand, you know, some of the benefits are, and people don't realize this, my baseline temperature could mm-hmm. be a complete degree or two different than somebody else's.
4: Yeah, that's a that's a great
2: point. And so if you go to the hospital and you're running a fever, well, there's fevers and then there's fevers, right? Like, you know, obviously if it's a high fever, it's bad. But if you're just a degree above normal, maybe mm-hmm. you're always a degree above normal and you don't require medication. Or conversely, maybe, you know, you're on the lower side and something as simple as a, a degree or two fever might indicate something that that's very wrong with you personally and mm-hmm. it's and it's that type of baseline basic information that will help doctors and 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 people who are treating you understand better what's going to work for you in in, in an emergency situation or otherwise
4: yeah right and also to to give you some guidance over the course of months and years yeah exactly so if you're diabetic and you've got blood sugar craziness it's all over the place and you're really having trouble getting it under control. AI might say, hey, you know, when you ate that fiber at 10 o'clock, you should do that on a regular basis. It lowers your blood sugar. Yeah. So then AI helps you learn how to live a better life. It's a good, it's a good point.
2: All right. So that's the positives. Are there risks to the use of AI in wellness?
4: Yeah, there definitely are. And I think that most of them are around two main areas. Privacy is the first one. Yep. Your personal data should be yours and yours alone. If AI looks at it, no one else should really have access to it unless you, you know, whatever. So privacy is a major concern about the, sensitiv- the sensitivity of the data. And then there's concerns actually about the AI itself. Is it making truly good connections and recommendations? And that's where studies come in. So if I can just give you a tiny example, initially, dermatologists, Could always outdiagnose a computer when looking at a skin condition. Mm -hmm. But with the dawn of AI over the last five years, the new AI that dermatologists are using can now give a correct diagnosis almost 99.9% of the time because it can see into things that our physical eyes can't see and makes a whole bunch of connections. So that's really important. But if the AI doesn't have some constitution or code or algorithm where people are looking at that and making sure its findings are true, that could definitely be a potential for harm because it could give people bad information.
2: So should we be concerned about the use of AI in the wellness industry?
4: Well, yeah. And I think that there needs to be, my personal opinion, complete transparency. The public needs to be informed. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, about how AI is being used in the wellness industry, I think it needs to be one of those things where it 's a label on a thing that says this device uses AI to make predictions that may or may not be accurate for now. those accurate, the accuracy is going to increase over time. Uh, we need robust privacy protection, like period, and it has to protect the individual and data um, and then it, you know we have to have people running the AI they have to be transparent accountable. Uh, those are all things that matter because you've got overlapping things, sensitive data, personalized information, and then the accuracy of the algorithm. So we've got to make sure that we're doing this right.
2: I'm going to draw an analogy. It used to be, not that I'm incredibly mechanically inclined, but I can fix a few things. It used to be that people, if they wanted to, could fix their own cars. Uh. I don't think that's the case anymore. Just with the way there are so many computers in in people's cars, you know, you really don't want to monkey around with anything much more than changing the oil or maybe Mm -hmm. the shock absorbers, maybe. And so I think we've reached a point where even if you could explain what AI does and how it works, I'm Mm. sure that the vast majority of the public wouldn't understand it, even if you laid it out for them. Correct. And I wonder if we should be utilizing a technology that most people can't fathom. Like it's one thing to send people to the moon because there's only five or six people going to the moon at yeah. any given time, right? So, like who cares mm-hmm. whether or not we understand how the rockets work, But if we're going to employ a technology that everybody is going to use, yet nobody understands to me that's problematic.
4: I agree with you, and I want to add a little nuance if you don't if you sure. don't mind, yeah, yeah, so my agreeing with you is that I think that's true. I think that we because AI is going to be ubiquitous over the next decade citizenship the citizenship of a country should be educated about its use because it's going to affect every citizen right. that's what i think yeah but on the flip side most people can describe how a bike works and they can ride one but yeah. they don't know how a bike works they can't describe it to you they can't tell you the angular momentum of a wheel that creates sure. you know perpendicular uprightness against gravity or a radio we can't build radios like i mean that that requires a specialized skill set so what we need to do in here you're raising the most important point of all in the future how do we create a world where we can trust each other enough to develop these tools so that they actually are in our best interest and not just for money
2: right so where do, you, where do you see the future going? Do you think we have it under control? Because everything, <laughs> no. re- everything I've read from, yep. from industry insiders is that we do not, and that we yeah. actually require like, meaningful regulation to see, right?
4: Yep. And I think the most important things here, again, are going to be to have transparency and openness. I think government should intervene earlier than later. But when I say governments, I mean people don't like what that looks like sometimes. So what I really mean is, as a society – We should educate ourselves and learn about these things in a way that when we vote leadership into office, we're doing so in a manner that they have some of our interests about AI in mind and elected leadership really needs to understand it as well, I would say, instead of just making decisions like we need more transparency and more understanding. It's important. It's affecting everything. If we're managing our health data with this then we should be doing it in a way that creates equanimity and equality for people using it.
2: Yeah. I guess I'm less optimistic. I think the North American model is to under regulate till there's a disaster and then use the disaster as the impetus to actually regulate using ex post logic. Yeah, not, not right. that you're going to get everything right by doing it in advance, but like it's a purely American model, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, you know, a hurricane's coming to Louisiana You know that your seawall isn't strong enough to hold it, but you wait until the disaster and then you fix it, as opposed to dedicating the resources to fix it in advance of the hurricane. I don't know. So forgive me for being a pessimist. All right. We're out of time today. What do you want to talk about next time we're on?
4: You know what? I think we should uh, keep it happy and go with five optimistic things that any average Canadian can do that'll change their health over the next week or two.
2: That sounds amazing. That was David Nelson. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss mindful eating for women on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Nicole Ocinga is a registered dietitian with the College of Dietitians in Ontario and holds a bachelor's and master's degree in human nutrition. She can be seen sharing nutrition tips, helpful tools, and trustworthy resources on national print and television outlets, including the Global Morning Show, and W Network. Nicole's practice areas include women's health, digestive health, diabetes, cancer, and finding balance uh, within it all. Welcome to the show, Nicole. How are you?
5: Hi, Jamie, thanks for having me, I'm good.
2: So uh, men and women are built differently. I don't think that's news to to you or me or anybody who regularly listens to the show, but does that mean that there are differences between men's and women's health needs and concerns? And if so, from a dietary perspective, what could those be?
5: Absolutely, yes. And depending of course on, you know, the life stage of a female and whatnot, but you know, there's different nutrient requirements that, that females have. So for example, you know, a female of childbearing age, they're gonna need more iron, for example, and that's gonna be different to um, a man. And at some stages around that menopausal time in our lives, we're gonna need things like more calcium because that's when, you know, bone mass typically declines. So yes, there's some differences. Depending on my stage, and that would uh, change how we're eating throughout the day as well.
2: Okay, so from a dietary perspective, you know, other than iron that you just mentioned and calcium, are, are there? certain foods that women tend to need extra support managing or feel that they're getting too much or are not enough of?
5: Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, yeah. Um, in addition to those, uh, those minerals, and I think what we've seen too is women tend to under consume fat. You know, we've gone through sort of those decades of, You know, low-fat diets um, in the 90s, early 2000s. So I think that I see that in my practice that that's often sticking with a lot of women that I work with. That there's usually that fat component that's missing from our meals, and you know, that's uh, that's going to have a a wider-reaching impact. So, for example, fat can help with the absorption of different nutrients in terms of hormone regulation as well. But fat also makes us feel full, you know, so I think if we're under consuming that in particular, you know, we're just maybe we're going to be snacking more. And I think sometimes when we're snacking a lot, that's going to up our sugar intake. So that's another nutrient that women do feel like they're getting too much of is too much refined sugar throughout the day.
2: Yeah, I think the devil has switched from fat to sugar. I think that's certainly certainly the the route that we, we seem to be on. Are there any common myths regarding women's health and nutrition that you'd like to debunk now on on radio?
5: Yeah, yeah. And I think sort of um, attaching to what I mentioned with the under-consuming fat, I think it's a myth that, you know, we do have to always search for the lowest fat product. You know, I think... like a tangible example I often see when I'm working with people in my practice is, you know, it's consume the lowest fat yogurt, the lowest fat dairy product. Um, You know, hold the dressing on this, but, you know, oh, don't consume more than, you know, 10 almonds, for example. Like that's something, again, that I think we're often kind of holding close. So I would say that's probably a big myth I I see often uh, in my practice with women.
2: Okay. What are some easy ways for women to take care of their health daily? And make sure they're meeting needs. So this is your opportunity to give some life hacks. (laughs)
5: <laughs> absolutely so you know I think a lot of concerns kind of come back down to planning and that sort of that mindfulness around our, our food choices you know I'm a dietitian, obviously I focus a lot around food choices but I think what we need to do is I, I think often and you know I'm kind of generalizing here but women I think are often putting the needs of others or other tasks before themselves and their, their own self-care and, and whatnot but I often see a lack of meal planning and That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have to make all your meals up ahead of time before the week starts, but I think it's just... That's a great way to ensure your meals are balanced. Is to ensure, let's say, you know we know what we're going to be um, types of meals we're going to be putting together throughout the week. Maybe we do some pre-prepping, chopping our veggies, you know, um, you know, making some quinoa. Having breakfast maybe prepared could be also really helpful. But just kind of putting some thought ahead of time and and planning those meals. And I think another part to that too is um, I do believe in the track uh, the power of tracking or journaling and that can be in the form of a written journal, but I also like, you know, to promote people using an app like MyFitnessPal, and that really helps, you know, not only just to, you know, let's say if someone has some weight loss goals and they're looking to, let's say, be in a calorie deficit, but I often use MyFitnessPal to track how much protein I'm eating or how much fiber because, you know, fiber is another nutrient we tend to be, women tend to be under-consuming. So I think whenever we're sort of tracking our food, one, we're seeing the, the quantitative value of the food that it offers. But I think also, too, it just helps with that mindful connection. How do I feel after having this type of dinner? How do I, you know, how am I feeling throughout the day? If I'm feeling low energy, am I consuming enough throughout the day? I think it's another, you know, concern I, I find women tend to run into. So to summarize, planning our meals is a really big one. And then second of all, tracking to help with those those concerns.
2: If somebody were to ask you, which is the thing that women could do that would be the least amount of effort, but the biggest bang for the buck, you know, theoretically, Mm -hmm. what would you tell them to do?
5: Yes. Yes. I I actually think the tracking is probably the biggest, you know, it, it takes, you know, again, I track my, my food often and. It takes me 30 seconds (laughs) to track what I'm eating, and I think it's just that great tool that helps to, you know, that gives us so much information that can help close the gap with, you know, some of those concerns that we're seeing, you know, that Again, that energy, are we getting enough um, of the healthy fats throughout the day? And then digestive health too, which can impact mood. Are we getting enough fiber? So I would say, yeah, tracking is probably the big one. Um, And you know, it's so accessible nowadays as well to download MyFitnessPal on our phone. It's free, we always have our smartphones with us, so that's an easy one there.
2: Okay, you you mentioned two intakes that are crucial to women's uh, health, dietary health, one being iron and one being fiber. Uh, is there a way for women to get those two into their diet relatively easily just by the foods that they're eating
5: yeah I'll start with um, I'll start with iron actually and mm-hmm. you know and and iron does vary throughout a women's lifespan um, if a woman is menstruating they need about 18 milligrams of iron a day, Um, and even actually during pregnancy, that does increase to around um, 27 milligrams of iron. But anyway, so some top iron sources. Beans are actually a great one, Um, white beans, lentils, kidney beans. uh, They actually contain three to four milligrams of iron per half cup serving. So I think we often think red meat is Mm -hmm. the best source of iron. It's a source, but I think these other foods often get forgotten about and pumpkin seeds is another one that I'm usually adding to my meals, having that with my oatmeal in the morning or on top of a salad. So that's a great one there. And, we, I think we hear spinach is a good source of iron, and Popeye might have <laughs> made that popular, but actually cooking our spinach, so sauteing spinach, actually makes the iron more absorbable. So I would encourage folks who are women to uh, to cook their spinach in a stir-fry, add it to a soup, let's say. Um, that's just going to really help boost the iron of um, of our meals. So yeah, so those are some iron sources there. And then in terms of fiber, the reason why I really mentioned beans for iron is beans can actually be a great great source of fiber as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, consuming them in, you know, the salad, the soup again, and I, I encourage people too to have, um, you know, a few meatless meatless dinners throughout the week if that's something they typically don't have because of those nutrients I mentioned. But other fiber-rich foods, chia seeds, flax seeds, oats, other whole grains, they're all great sources of fiber as well.
2: Do you have any best practices or tips that you give to women looking to be more aware of their overall health and wellness? Mm
5: -hmm. And uh, I I think the tracking, again, is going to be a really great reflection tool. You know, I think when we we go to therapy, we, you know, we often journal. But I think, you know, really just to kind of be aware of our health, um, tracking our food. And I think even another tool, too, is to simply rate things like our, our energy, our mood, our sleep, often on a scale of one to five. And I think that's even a good reflection tool. Um, and then that's going to help us sort of dive deeper into the analysis. Why is my energy lower? Why was my sleep a little bit off? You know. And then I think, I think we often have answers uh, to our concerns, but I think we often don't stop to pause and reflect, how am I feeling? You know. And then to analyze the reasons why we're feeling that way.
2: Okay. A lot of my listeners are active and exercise, doing stuff like Zumba or yoga or HIIT classes. Are there any types of foods or nutrients that are more beneficial to eat either pre or post exercise?
5: Yeah, a great question. And I was just actually speaking about this today on uh, my social media. And um, in terms of exercise nutrition, it really depends on a number of factors, you know, in terms of what type of exercise we're doing. So for something like yoga, Depending, you know, there's different styles of yoga, but I would say if it's sort of a lower impact kind of exercise, it's up to us if we want to have, you know, something at all or something big beforehand. But, you know, something that's a little bit higher exercise, it is crucial to have a carbohydrate source before, before exercise. You know, for example, I'm a runner myself, so I always have, you know, if it's a low fiber fruit beforehand or some oatmeal, depending on how much time I have. That's a really crucial one. And then if you have more than an hour before your exercise, having a bit of protein. So I love Greek yogurt. You get some calcium from Greek yogurt too or some protein powder. So those are some things to have before exercise. And after exercise, I actually normally recommend trying to have a balanced meal with protein, fat, carbs, and veggies an hour or two after exercise. If our appetite isn't too big after exercise, which sometimes mine isn't, Having something like a smoothie is actually perfect post-exercise. You know, it's easier usually to drink than eat if our appetite's lower. And then we can blend up a smoothie with some protein, powder, some veggies, some fruit. Um, and then I, I throw some flax or chia seeds in there often too.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for coming on the show today.
5: Oh, thanks for having me, Jamie.
2: That was Nicole Singa. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about a doctor who misdiagnosed himself on the tonic. Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Non-radiographic, axial, Spondyloarthritis is a chronic, progressive, painful form of inflammatory arthritis. It's possible that you or someone you love is is impacted by it, but they haven't actually been diagnosed, which is one of the biggest challenges facing patients today. It can take years to properly diagnose this painful, progressive, inflammatory, rheumatic disease. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ali Karam, a physician. Chair of the Canadian uh, SA, which is the Spondyloarthritis Association, and a patient living with the disease. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karam. Hello. You're making me say this again, and it's a tough one. What is a non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis?
0: Well, thank you so much, first of all, for the invite. It's really a pleasure. It is difficult to pronounce. It is. It's non- yeah, it's non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Let's call it non-radiographic or something that does not appear on x-rays, on normal x-rays. AXPA or AS, so non-radiographic AS to make it short. So basically, it's a disease. It's an inflammatory disease that has a prevalence of 1%. So 1% of Canadians have this disease with an average age of 30 at diagnosis. And it, it affects equally men and women. So it's a young, active population at their peak of their career being diagnosed with this inflammatory disease that can appear in any joint in a form of flares. What does it mean, flares? It means... Waves. So some days you would feel totally normal and some other days you would get those huge pains in your shoulders, back, ankle, you name it.
2: So you've been living with this, and I understand that for you, it was an interesting situation when you were diagnosed, or, or more specifically, misdiagnosed. Can you share a little bit about that?
0: Well, that's the ironic part, right? So yeah. I was doing my residency in orthopedic surgery. And during my residency, I, well, I was actually playing squash. I was going for that impossible ball to save. Uh, that's my competitive nature. And I was trying to get to that ball, and I slipped, and I fell on my back. I thought, well, that's nothing. That's just a sprain. It will go away. But it didn't. It actually took me more than three months before getting through that first flare of pain in my back and when i woke up the next day i can tell you i felt super super old really old like the hot showers would help but the most predominant thing was the pain so again as i said before it's like you wake up some some days you're totally normal and some other days you can't do the simplest things like putting on your pants or having a short walk And it took me personally more than two years before getting to the right diagnosis, even though I was surrounded by experts in the field. My markers, my inflammatory markers, were negative. My x-ray was negative, which is kind of rare for a disease that is already not that frequent. So it got us, it got me. And... Thank God that my wife, a family physician, resident back then, got feeling that it might be non radiographic AS, and I got the right test, which is basically an MRI center on the joints, what we call the sacroiliac joints. And thankfully, I got to the diagnosis, and at this moment, I was like, I miss my own diagnosis as a physician. Can you imagine someone not having that background or not having that knowledge? This is when my biggest challenge in life really became one of my biggest passions. And this is when I joined the Canadian Sponsor Low Arthritis Association, first as a board member, then as a chair. Right now, hopefully, to try to decrease that delay to diagnosis from 7 to 9 years currently, hopefully by at least 50%.
2: So, now that you know what you have, does it continue to impact your life? Like, what is it like for you? You get these pains and waves, I guess, before you were were properly treated, right? So, I
0: was fortunate. And this is why getting to the right diagnosis and early diagnosis is key, right? So, when you get to that non-neurotographic stage, so where this inflammation does not appear on usual x-rays, but appears on MRI, you get a better response to treatment. And after... Being for a couple of months, more than six months on anti-inflammatory drugs, I wasn't responding well. So I switched to a biologic, a biologic agent that basically really changed my life. It was a game changer for me. They gave me the majority of my quality of life path. Now, I still have pain. I still have to deal with amounts of pain every day. However, nothing compared to before. And with a biologic, you get a better chances of avoiding those late complications, which is basically having your spine completely rigid or fixed. And this is what we want to try to avoid. This is why an early diagnosis is key in that disease for better response to treatment and to avoid those late complications. We always say in AS... Time is spine. Spine meaning uh, we want to preserve the mobility of our spine as much as possible.
2: But this is a very challenging disease to to, to properly diagnose because it doesn't show up on x-rays, right? You need that MRI and access to MRIs is not exactly easy in this country.
0: Absolutely, this is a great point, and this is why with the Canadian Spontaneous Arthritis Association and with our medical partners, for example, with our Spark partners. Spark is a consortium, basically, of physicians that specialize in AS. We have this plan to decrease that time to diagnosis and basically get a rapid access for MRI to those patients. Hopefully, in the next years to come, we will raise enough our voices. We will prove that this is something that needs to be done and needs to be addressed as soon as possible.
2: Okay, so assuming one gets diagnosed and they know what they have... You mentioned a biologic uh, treatment. Is that the newest form of treatment? Is that the most effective or is there something else out there?
0: A biologic is basically a molecule that decreases a bit your inflammatory response. There are a lot of biologics. Now, in terms of uh, new medication, now we know that this year we had an approval for a couple of new drugs and for the new drugs that were approved recently, more specifically for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, there is a drug uh, called Rinvoq that was approved for patients in Canada to be taken for this specific disease. The advantage that it has uh, is that basically it can be taken by mouth versus other medication that can be injected. But again, I mean, as chair of the Canadian Spondylarthritis Association, it is very important for us to advocate for those new innovative treatments because we need them. It's crucial that Canadians living with that disease get access, and I'll tell you why. Because with years, with time, after five years, 50% 50% of us will tend to become resistant to the drug they're already on. So it's very important to get access to those new medications. And this is our role, uh, one of the biggest role with CSA, the Canadian Spongebob Arthritis Association, is to advocate for Rapid access to treatment, because again, time is spine.
2: Do the effectiveness of the biologics wear off over time too, or once you get one of those, you're good to go for the rest of your life?
0: No, that's the thing. Studies have shown that after five years, we like fifty percent of us get resistant. Even this to is the why bi- again, access to new medication is important.
1: So even
2: with the biologics, you need you need absolutely. to absolutely.
0: Find- it's the, it's the resistance to the biologics.
2: Okay. If somebody was experiencing back pain, stiffness, what would you recommend as a physician to help them get the right treatment? What should they do?
0: So I'm not here to give any, anyone advices. I think uh, the medical community, like everybody is responsible of getting up to date with their own knowledge and they're qualified to do so. I'm not here to teach anyone. The only thing that I would say for patients or other healthcare professionals is one of the best ways to tackle that disease is to differentiate be- between two types of back pain. The most common one is the mechanical back pain. So that's the back pain that almost everybody will get. I mean, at a certain moment in their life, more than 90% of the population will get mechanical back pain. That's the back pain that you get that basically increases with exercise and decreases with rest. Inflammatory back pain, that's the second most common cause of back pain. So it's basically back pain that increases with rest, wakes you up at night when you're sitting it hurts the most and basically decreases with exercise. So that's one of the best way to like already categorize back pain and once you get inflammatory back pain in someone for more than 3 months in someone that is less than 45 years of age or that started having those symptoms before 45 chances are you need to rule out
2: Okay. If somebody's listening to this interview and they want to learn more about diagnosis and proper treatment, what are the resources available to them?
0: The first thing that I would recommend, and this is something that I had partially at the beginning, is going to the website. Our website was CSA. So it's sparthritis.ca. This is a great resource to start with. So you have medical information that is validated by top experts in the field, and you have great resources, whether you're living in Montreal, in Ottawa, a rural region, it doesn't matter. It will get you great resources, validated, but also support. So right now we offer support in terms of support groups, virtual support groups, but also other things like, for example, yoga. Yoga for AS, we have a beautiful library, Tai Chi is coming up. So really, I like, try to tackle that disease in a more integrative approach. And this is what we're trying to do with uh, at CSA. And I think this is a great resource to start with that might benefit everybody. And you know, when you live with this disease, one of the things that you really want to address or you really want to know is that you're not alone in this. And this gives you exactly that sense of community.
2: Fantastic. At, at
0: the beginning, I was like, oh my God, thank God. Okay, I'm not alone. This is not just in my head. This is an invisible disease, but okay, I'm not crazy. There are actually other people living with this, So them living better than others, but we can all learn from each other.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: My pleasure.
2: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Ludo Brunel, N.D., Dr. David Nelson, N.D., Nicole Singa, and Dr. Ellie Karam. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine, which is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you know you can always email me at jamie at On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Basson wishing you a healthy and happy week.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air.